Hello, and welcome to the MIT Press Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Gondek, and today I'm going to be speaking with Richard Meyer about his new book, What Was Contemporary Art? Richard Meyer is professor of art history at Stanford University. He's the author of Outlaw Representation, Censorship and Homosexuality in 20th Century American Art, and Naked Hollywood, Ouija in Los Angeles. Richard Meyer, thanks for taking time to talk to the MIT Press Podcast today. I'm a pleasure to do so. I'm happy to be here. It seems that this book is a response to a current trend in art history graduate work, the increasing popularity yet decreasing scope of contemporary art scholarship. Can you give us a sense of both halves of this trend? Yeah, I mean, I've been teaching graduate students for the last 15 years, and what I noticed over the course of that time was that more and more of the applicants and also the students who came to work with me wanted to work on younger and younger artists, sometimes artists who were even younger than they are. So basically, the way they thought of art history was as the time of their own lives. And anything that happened before they were born didn't really count as an interest of theirs. I was very struck by this because when I started graduate school in 1988, we only wrote about dead artists. There was no possibility of writing about living artists. So obviously, between 1988 and now, something radical had changed in the field of art history, but I felt like it wasn't fully being discussed or the, and the implications of the switch based from dead artists to living artists wasn't being really thought through. So that was one half of the problematic that the book wanted to take up. The other was that when contemporary art was discussed and periodized, it was almost always understood as a period that came after the modern. So you had museums of modern art that, let's say, went up to 1989 sometimes, or 1972 or 1960, and then you had museums of contemporary art that that came after that. And the point of this book is to argue that all works of art, Renaissance, prehistoric, medieval, um, 18th century, all works of art were once contemporary to the artist and culture that created them. And that maybe by looking at the history of contemporary art um, in earlier moments, we could get a better sense of our own moment. So the argument is not, as the title might suggest, and I kind of somewhat, um, somewhat, uh, let's see, what's the word, irreverently wanted it to suggest that the contemporary was over. But really the argument of the book is not that the contemporary was over, so what was contemporary art when it existed, but rather that the contemporary has a history. What was contemporary art in 1927? What was contemporary art in 1933? What was it, you know, and so forth. And that if we put these earlier moments of the contemporary in conversation with today, which is what the end of the book tries to do, the afterward, which is about much more recent art, that we might be able to think in a deeper, more dialectical, and more historically conscious way about our own moment. So is one of the reasons why this book is important, and this is one of the things that I was getting out of the book, or at least asking myself this question, is because of this new focus of students on contemporary work, artists who are alive today, are we blurring that line between art criticism and art history to the point where there's really no historical scholarship going on? In a way, it's just all art criticism with a thin veneer of history. I think that's an excellent point, and one of the questions in the book, in the introduction, I talk about how the, all these students that I have that want to write about yesterday or sometimes tomorrow or today, I say to them, well, how is your work any different as a, as a scholar of contemporary art from an art critic? And one of the answers is, well, art critics are actually publishing their work in magazines. And I mean, one of the things that defines art criticism is that it has certain means of distribution and it has a certain journalistic um, function. Whereas students in, you know, who's reading a seminar paper at USC, except for three other people in the class and maybe the professor. And my students, I found, were very dismissive of art criticism. And they thought that what they were doing as scholars was so much more important than um, what was happening in magazines and newspapers, and also more important than what was happening in um, 
catalogs. So they would say, oh, no one's written about this artist except for art critics and curators. And I would say in response, how lo- that's so great that you have, all, you have art criticism and curators writing about it because that is contemporary art history. That is the documents that you then need to engage with, not to condescend to, and not to imagine that just because you're getting a PhD or somehow superior to an art critic or a curator, but actually to think about, well, what is the discourse around this work of art and what do I have to contribute to it? And one of the things that I I argue in the book that really scholars of contemporary art need to do, just like scholars of medieval art or scholars of Egyptian art, ancient Egyptian art need to do, is research. I mean, I think one of the things that distinguishes art criticism from art contemporary art history is that art criticism at the end of the day is a discussion by a critic, an evaluation, you know, as Kermit Greenberg said, the final goal, the final uh, the final responsibility of the art critic is to evaluate, is to make evaluative, I, I'm paraphrasing here, but basically is to make value judgments. And I don't think that's the role of the art historian. I think the role of the art historian is to research and try to get on terms with, uh, with a historical moment. Now, the historical moment may be five years ago. It may be two years ago, but it's still not the same as the, you know, our own moment right now. And so um, part of what the book is arguing is, you know, contemporary art criticism is partially trying to keep up with the contemporary art world. And that I think contemporary art historical scholarship, in fact, the argument at the end of the book is that we need to fall behind the times. That scholarship takes a long time, that academic press publishing takes at least a year, and that rather than regretting this because we're not going to the latest biennial or reading the latest blog, we should actually embrace this as part of a different temporality, not the temporality of art fairs and of the hot young artists, but actually the temporality of a different kind of thinking and writing that takes time, that takes years. I mean, this book took me at least nine years to complete, and for a long time I thought like, oh, it's going to be so outdated by the time it appears, and then I realized that's exactly the argument. I want it to be outdated. I want to make an argument for being outdated, rather than for imagining, which I think a lot of my contemporary students do, that simply get going around the world and going to art fairs and biennials and documentas is their education. I mean, that's not an education as far as I'm concerned. That's an itinerary, you know, and, and it's also a very expensive one, which at least when I was a grad student, I couldn't afford, and most of mine I don't think can. So, I mean, nor do I think that it should be the, the, the um, pedagogy that they're practicing. You know, I think they should be doing research, and that research may have nothing to do with going to uh, Venice, or or document or Kassel or Havana or Johannesburg. You know, it may have to do with going to Philadelphia or going to you know the library at one's own campus. So really, in a way, the book. I don't want to say it's traditional, but I think it is an argument for the importance of long longer duration thinking and writing. And I think that that is different from criticism, which has a temporal pressure to be up to date because you're writing for the newspaper or the magazine, which is coming out daily or monthly or weekly. And art history, I think, or contemporary art history has a very, should have a very different sense of its contribution and of its timeline. I do want to get into the specifics of the book, but this is as good a time as any to ask a question I had lined up for later. Is this shift by current students due to economic pressures, since the art market is so much more global now and you have so many more contemporary artists coming in, that the need for people to evaluate their work for collectors is so overwhelming that the push to study contemporary art and attend all of these exhibitions is that that's where the action is. That's the greatest economic need. Does that make sense? Yes, it totally makes sense, and I really agree with that. And one of the things I've noticed is that some of my best contemporary art history students, the ones who 
say they're going to get PhDs. Before they finish their PhDs, they get sucked into either the music, contemporary art museum world or to the art market, galleries, consulting, auction houses. So basically what happens is that the smartest would-be scholars, well, sometimes they need jobs, they have families they need to support, whatever, but they, they kind of, I don't want to, it's not selling out. It's simply there, is, there are all these professional opportunities that a student of art history, especially contemporary art history, has that a student, say, of literature does not have because contemporary art history is connected to a luxury marketplace. And now that market is bigger. It literally is just larger and more global than it's ever been before. It doesn't mean that the art market has never been global. It used to be called internationalism. I mean, it, it, it's, a, it's a fiction that globalization was invented in, the, in 89 or after the fall of the Berlin Wall or with the rise of the Internet. Anyway, I partially argue this in the book, that this whole idea that globalization has just begun or is, a more, is, a, is an effective biennial culture is, is, a, is a falsehood historically. But I do think the art market is larger and more global and more capitalized than it's ever been before, which means that there are more and more jobs, possibilities, so that when we train students, and I, I believe as a professor, I'm happy if my students get any job. You know, if they get a, if they get a job in this, mar, in this uh, economy, if they can get a job that they're happy with, that supports them, that they can support themselves, that's great with me. I don't have any particular um, ethical belief that they have to finish their PhD. I want them to be happy in their lives. But I do think that there are many more economic and um, professional, as it were, temptations along the way for contemporary art history students simply because there's such a huge contemporary art market. And I'm including in that museums, auction houses, courses that auction houses offer, galleries, now research, you know, galleries are now doing museum quality um, exhibition publications. I mean, there's a huge, huge um, need for the kind of expertise in writing, research, um, public, you know, uh, uh, interviewing, um, and smart, hopefully smart um, thinking that graduate students in art history are trained for. And as I say, I don't think there's an equivalent market for a graduate student in philosophy or a graduate student in East Asian literature or, or, what, or any other field in the humanities. Let's get into the book. If there is a protagonist in this book, it is the scholar and curator, Alfred Barr. And I wasn't sure if I hadn't heard of him because I don't have a strong background in art history, or if even those who study art history don't know about him. Could you explain who he was and why he's important to this book? Yeah. Alfred Barr was the founding director of the Museum of Modern Art. The Museum of Modern Art opened in 1929 in New York City. Um, and I had always, myself, I write about this in the book, I had always assumed, kind of following the line of, anyway, certain critics associated with the October, magazine October, but also just with a kind of postmodernist critique of modernism, which basically said Alfred Barr was a formalist modernist, and he believed in a, in a teleology that ended with abstraction, modernist abstraction, and that that was the greatest form of art in the 20th century, and that everything that wasn't basically School of Paris, European-derived abstraction was kind of kitsch or, or retro, retardataire or retrograde, retrograde. That's the story that a lot of people, if they know of Alfred Barr at all, they associate with him. When I actually started doing research on Alfred Barr, I found out that not only before he was the director of MoMA, he taught the very first course in the United States that went up to the contemporary moment, then the contemporary moment. So he taught a course at Wellesley College in 1927, where he took the students to see Metropolis. He took them to see the largest candy factory in the world. He took them to an auto show. He took them to the five and dime. He 
actually forced the students to engage with contemporary art and culture in a way that was unprecedented within the field of art history in 1927. This was fascinating to me. I did not know anything about this history. One woman, Sybil Cantor, had written a really interesting book about Alfred Barr and the intellectual origins of the Museum of Modern Art. In fact, that book was also published by MIT Press, although I think it may be out of print now. But anyway, I read that book and I thought, you know, this is really fascinating. And I went to Wellesley and I did research in their archives and I found some of, I found various, I found the syllabus to the course, I found, no, I found articles about the course, I found various accounts of the course, including some by women who, unfortunately, I couldn't find any women who were still alive, Wellesley alumna, who had taken the course. I just missed them. I think the last one had died just when I started doing my research, which was very disappointing. I actually took out an ad in the Wellesley Alumni Magazine and said, if anyone has took Alfred Barr's course on uh, modern painting in 1927, please contact me. But no one answered. It was just too late because they would have been in their 90s by now. But anyway, so that, so one thing I didn't know about Alfred Barr, and I think is not known is before he was the founding director of MoMA, he was an art historian at Wellesley. He was actually, when he got this job, he was also still a graduate student at Harvard working on his PhD. And when he then went to MoMA, he he, as in 1929, he was interested in such a wide range of things. He did a prehistoric art show. He did, uh, he, under his tenure, they did a show of facsimiles of Persian frescoes, um, you know, from the Middle Ages. He did shows of American Indian art, he did shows of machine art, he did shows of uh, Russian posters, all of these things that do not align this notion that all Barr cared about and all modernism cared about was abstract painting and sculpture. So I felt like here is a story that is that even those who know Alfred Barr don't know this story. And I feel like part of the role of the contemporary art historian is to tell stories that people don't know. I mean, not when I say stories, I don't mean fiction, but to excavate histories that aren't known and that will actually change the way people think not only about the past, but also about the present moment. So that's how Alfred Barr never expected Barr to become such a huge protagonist. But in a way, I sort of really fell in love with his pedagogy. And part of the book says, well, what would Alfred Barr's course that he taught in 1927 at Wellesley, what would it look like today? What magazines, what posters, what movies, what theater, what painting, what sculpture, what industrial architecture, what fashion design, which are all things that he taught them, showed them, what would we show today in such a class? And part of my, part of the motivation behind the book was to ask scholars today to be as wide-ranging and interdisciplinary and truly expansive in both their imagination and in their teaching, as I think are, as I try to prove that Barr was in his. So when Barr was doing these things in the 1930s at the Museum of Modern Art, you know, Russian icons, prehistoric rock pictures, not exactly modern to 1930s audiences, what was the public's reaction to these exhibitions? Did, did they get what he was trying to do? Yes and no. I mean, the public, in, like the most successful show in terms of popular um, attendance in the history of MoMA until uh, the late, I think until 1950, was a show of Italian Renaissance and Baroque art called, that I write about called um, Masterpieces of Italian Art. And that had, you know, and, and there were hundreds of thousands of people. The museum stayed open until 10 o'clock at night, usually it closed at 6. They held over the show for weeks and weeks because there was such a, this was Botticelli's Birth of Venus and a Michelangelo Madonna, tond, a, a, a marble of, of the Madonna and Child, and Titian's Pope Paul III, and world 
world-class, world-famous paintings that had never left Italy before. The Metropolitan Museum turned down the show, and Barr thought, these works of art are so great, I don't care if they're not 19th or 20th century art. Modern artists have been so influenced by the Renaissance, and this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. There were other reasons why he showed prehistoric art had to do with abstraction and the ways in which artists like Adolf Gottlieb, for example, and other modern artists were actually looking at prehistory and at cave paintings as a way of as a way of kind of thinking about modernity. So the the notion that like modernity was not going to be uh, teleological, straight, linear history from the 18th to the 19th to the 20th century, but rather that actually you would look in modernity for moments that were discontinuous. And there could hardly be a moment that's more discontinuous than prehistoric art, where we don't know who made it, we don't know what the meaning was, but yet and it was rediscovered in the late 19th and early 20th century. So prehistoric art was literally, in a sense, a kind of modern art because it wasn't known until the modern period. But when it was rediscovered, it had this enormous impact on artists and many other people. And so what Barr said is, you cannot understand the modern artist unless you look at the incredible range of materials that the modern artist is looking at. And this may be anything from the Paleolithic to what he called French primitive, from African, what he called African Negro art, to, you know, Giotto or, or, or Cimabue or, or Botticelli. And so the reason why he was showing all of this non-modern art was because he believed that it was all things that had influenced the modern and also that it was important in its own right. When Barth taught modern art at um, Wellesley, his requirement, his prerequisite for that course was a course in Italian Renaissance and Baroque art, which he also taught. So he didn't think you could understand what was going on in the 19th and 20th centuries unless you understood the whole history of art, literally from prehistory and, non, and non-Western as well as Western art um, throughout, throughout civilization. And that, again, to me, was a really inspiring idea of what it would mean to be a modern, that being a modern was not only about what was going on in the, in the 20s or the 30s or the 40s, but also what had gone on in prehistory, in the Middle Ages, in the Renaissance, uh, and also what had gone on in Africa and Asia and South America, and not only what had gone on in Western Europe and the United States. So again, I really felt like here is the most expansive possible version of the contemporary. And that's sort of what the book is arguing. Let's stop thinking that the contemporary is just a function of a certain international art world, of a certain biennial. Let's think about folk art. Alfred Barr was very interested and he showed a lot of folk art. Let's think about weaving. Let's think about posters. Let's think about you know, uh, product design. Let's think about um, show windows at department stores. All of these things that Barr not only was interested in, but he actually exhibited at MoMA. And that I feel like that history has been largely obscured by this, as I said, this sort of fiction that he was only interested in abstract painting and sculpture. So part of the book is about retrieving a lost history of the Museum of Modern Art and of Alfred Barr. Richard Meyer, the author of What Was Contemporary Art? Thanks for being on the MIT Press podcast today. Thank you, Chris. I really appreciate it. I enjoyed talking to you. For more information about this and other titles, please visit our website at mitpress.mit.edu. Don't forget the MIT Press is on Facebook, www.facebook.com slash mitpress. And you can follow us on Twitter, where we are, at MIT Press. Thanks for listening to this episode of the MIT Press podcast. Copyright 2013, the MIT Press. All rights reserved.